turn to Matthew 4. We'll get there in just a second. Um, but I'm just going to read a couple of things, and then we'll, we'll jump into that. Uh, last week, we started talking about wholeness, okay? So you are whole, yet there remains a problem with our wholeness, which is our seeming brokenness. There's a problem with the message that you are whole. Veda drew this for me this morning, so I have it up here. There's a problem with the message that you are whole, and the problem with the message that you are whole is the fact that it seems like a lot of us are broken, So how do we see ourselves as whole while carrying broken pieces? In fact, this is the message I got last week after the uh, sermon um, that somebody listened to, and they said, uh, aren't we supposed to embrace our brokenness and and then let the Lord make us whole? And uh, and I was like, that's not necessarily bad or wrong, uh, but what Scripture shows us is that through Christ, we have been brought into fullness. And so I'm going to explain this in just a second. The issue is not whether or not we're broken or whether or not we're whole. The issue is we are whole, but we're living broken. So I'm going to explain this in a second. Uh, Amy Jill Levine, a professor of New Testament studies at Vanderbilt University Divinity School, um, authored a book called The Misunderstood Jew. I've, explained, I've shared this a few times with you guys. But she writes this in her book towards the end of it. She says this, Christianity in the modern American sense is like football. There is a linear sense to the Christian canon. The canon is just simply the Bible. Uh, One moves from the promise of the line of scrimmage to the goal of the end zone, which is, she calls it eschatology, but I don't want to use two big words today. Uh, it's, It's what happens in the end. When I say eschatology, it simply means what happens at the end, okay? So for some people, that's the rapture. For some people, it's the uh, return and the fulfillment of the kingdom, et cetera. But that's what we're talking about when we say eschatology. So there is a linear sense, she says, to the Christian Bible. One moves from promise of the line of scrimmage to the goal of what happens in the end. But for Judaism, which is where this all got started, at least, understood by the, by the Judaistic Bible order, Judaism is like baseball. The concern for Judaism is to return to Zion or go home. So she says, for Christianity, and she's Jewish, by the way, so she's coming at it from that perspective. But for Christianity, in the modern American sense at least, There is this sense that we're starting somewhere and the whole game of life is to move to the end zone, which is, for most of us, heaven, right? Which isn't bad, but the problem with that thinking is the closer we get to heaven, for us, the further we get from where we started. What we just read, though, was the story ends where we started. Okay, And she says, the Hebrew idea is not we're starting here and we're going here. The Hebrew idea, the Judaistic, the Israelite idea is that we started here, we left home on our own, and the whole goal of everything is for the Lord to get us back home. This is one of the ways that Christianity leaving its Jewish roots is unfortunate. We see the story of God as a straight line starting with the garden 
and ending in a distant heaven. The story of Scripture, however, is the story of a circle. I said I didn't need the whiteboard, now I'm going to get the whiteboard, okay. So, uh, sorry, Matt, I totally lied to you. I apologize. All right, so this is what we think. This is, we see Christian, and this is a lot of review of stuff that we've talked about. Christianity, and I hate even using these labels because what I'm not saying is we all need to become Jews, okay? That's not what I'm saying at all. But Christianity starts here. For some people, that's when they repeat a prayer, you know, when they were born, whatever the starting point is, okay? We start here, and then this is life. And then over here is heaven or, of course, you know, hell or whatever. But this, this is, and so there's linear movement. We're always moving away from where we started. For, uh, let me write, let me just write it in a way that won't confuse you. Let's say Israelites. That way you'll feel a little more connected with them, which is sad that we feel like that with Judaism. Judaism. But anyway, for, for Jews, this is life. And no matter where you start, let's say, you could start right here. No matter where you start on the circle, the whole movement of life is moving you back ultimately to where you started. So in the story of Scripture, this is new creation, Okay, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 starts here. This is the narrative. You might put the fall. You might put the flood. Abraham, Israelites leaving Egypt, the Exodus, um, getting the law, the kings, David, the prophets, uh, the later prophets, um, Malachi. There's the you know, time in between. And then you have Jesus, John the Baptist coming in the story. Jesus dies, resurrection, church. And then, oh, look at here. Where are we? New creation. And there's the whole time, there's been a movement to get us back home. This is a lot more accurate than this. We're not moving away from Eden. We're moving back to Eden. This is where the Jason Upton song that I love that y'all probably get tired of me singing all the time is uh, uh, home to me. We have journeyed far from Eden, but we are coming home. Okay. No matter where you start on the circle, you always come around to the same place. That's home. The story of scripture, just to review, starts with new creation and ends with new creation. It starts with humanity in the garden, with complete union with God, and it ends with humanity in a proverbial garden we call the kingdom, with complete union with God. It was never about moving forward. It has always been about coming home. That doesn't mean we don't progress and advance. It simply means the way we measure growth and advancement is home, not distance. So in finding who we really are and discovering our wholeness, that's why there is nothing to do but simply be. To use the baseball analogy, you know where home base is. If you're playing baseball, you know where home base is. And how do you know where home base is? Because it's where you start. You know where home base is 
Because that is where you start. How do you know where home is? Because you've been there before. That's where you started. When you were a baby, you weren't broken and sinful. You were born whole and pure. Your story starts with wholeness. And I know like that's the popular like, well, it's becoming less popular, thank God. But the popular thing, you know, all, all people are, are just born into sin. Hold, hold up. And this is where you got the thing, I think in the Catholic church they do this. Um, if a baby is, is dying, they'll hurry up and baptize them so that when they die, I hope to God, they make it. You know what I mean? And we're talking about a baby who doesn't even know how to say the word the. Right? Because there's this, you're, you're born evil. Sorry, sorry, Jesus. Sorry about what you did. Didn't do anything. So appreciate it. You know what I'm saying? You're born evil. And why? Because of what happened at the fall. But there's a big problem with that. Between where we are and between the fall, there is this thing called Jesus who undid what happened in the fall. So when you were born, you were born whole. You know what wholeness is because that's where your story started. Your story started in purity and wholeness. And what happened is, as you grew up, it wasn't that your brokenness was made known. It was that we simply started leaving home. All the while, though, while we are leaving home, what the Lord knows to be true about us is every step we think we're leaving home further away from, we're actually getting closer to coming back. The issue is not how do we embrace our brokenness to become whole. The issue is we are whole innately yet try to live broken. And just like your identity is not a sum of your works, neither is your wholeness. You are not whole because you live whole. You're whole because Christ made you whole before you were even born. Wholeness is not a sum. Wholeness is a truth. It is what it is. Does that, does that make sense? Wholeness is not good work plus good work equals wholeness. It's not a sum of anything. Wholeness is simply truth. So my name is Josh. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter if I murder somebody or if I don't murder somebody or if I steal money or I don't steal money or if I cheat on my wife or I don't cheat on my wife. At the end of the day, my name is Josh. Why? Because my name is not a sum of my actions. My name is simply a truth given to me before I was born. In the same way, your wholeness is not a sum of what you've done. Your wholeness is your identity. It's the name that the Father gave you before you were ever born. Okay? The Father of lies would like you to believe that you are broken and to embrace it. But even that is further proof that you're actually whole or you wouldn't need to be convinced otherwise. Listen to what Mark Twain said. He said this, this is, I so relate to this and maybe you will too. Mark Twain once said, I am an old man now and have a great many problems. Most of them never happened. I so relate to that. I'm an old man 
I have great many problems and most of them never happen. Martin Laird, in a book that I will be forever quoting, I cannot recommend this enough, Contemplative Prayer, uh, uses an analogy of Mount Zion. Now in scripture, Mount Zion is the dwelling place of God. That's where David built the temple for God to live in, Mount Zion, okay? So Zion represents the dwelling place of God. Well, in the book, Martin Laird uses an analogy of Mount Zion, and he says that we, you and I, are Mount Zion, okay? So for example, Ephesians 2.22 says this, in him, who is Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, okay? Where God dwells by definition of Scripture is Zion. So you and I are Zion. And he says the stuff that happens in our lives is the weather around Mount Zion. Listen to what he says. He says, when we recognize that we are Mount Zion, God's holy dwelling place, and no longer suffer from the illusion that we are the weather, then we are free to let life be as it is at any given moment. We're no longer victims of our afflictive thoughts, but their vigilant witness, silent and free, no longer requiring pain to be gone if it happens to be present. One more time. When we recognize that we are Mount Zion, God's holy dwelling place, and no longer suffer from the illusion that we are the weather, then we are free to let life be as it is at any given moment. We're no longer the victims of our afflictive thoughts, but their vigilant witness, silent and free, no longer requiring pain to be gone if it happens to be present. That is a major statement. What is he saying? He's saying that there are so many moments in our lives that we become the weather around Zion rather than Zion. This is when we move from whole to broken. We cannot control the weather, but we try to anyway. You and I, we cannot control the weather. I would love to control the weather and say never rain on a Sunday. You know what I'm saying? but we can't control the weather. But how many times in our lives do we attempt to control things we cannot control? The weather is simply God's to control. The situations that happen in our lives are God's to control. This is the mystery of what we call providence. But you were never designed to control the situations in your life. This is why we have verses that encourage us to know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. We have that because there are going to be many moments in our lives where we don't know what is going on, why it's going on, and when it's going to end. But our hope is not that we have to figure it all out. Our hope is that all is a part of, of God's plan. There is nothing to figure out for it has never been in question. We can stop replaying the Genesis 3 deception of trying to be God and simply reflect that which is God. You cannot control the weather as much as you want to. 
Sometimes it is even going to be sunny and you're going to feel like everything's okay. And sometimes it's going to rain and you're going to wonder when the rain will stop. But rain is necessary to provide water and life to the things that sustain us. All weather is necessary. All weather is necessary. What if the things that you walk through that we call storms, what if those things are actually providing nourishment to something that would not be provided for if you didn't walk through a storm? Maybe that's why James said, count it all joy when you face temptation of every kind. Joy. Why? Because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. When perseverance done its work, it'll make you mature and complete, lacking nothing. So in order for lacking nothing to grow out of your garden, you have to walk through a storm to feed it. Okay? All weather is necessary. And when it's raining, you're going to wonder when it's going to stop. But what the Lord is doing in us right now is he's moving us from the mentality that wants to control weather to the rest that comes when we recognize we are not the weather, we are Zion. It is then, listen to this, that we can observe the weather swirling around us for the beauty that it really is. If you are, to use this analogy, if you're Zion, the mountain, steady, strong, standing above, and a storm comes up, and you begin to move from, now, now, there's nothing you can do to change the fact, Lord, I need more whiteboard space, okay? Let's pretend these are mountains, okay? And this mountain right here, Zion. You can't change who you are. You're Zion. So when you move from being who you are to somebody trying to control the weather, by definition, that is sin. Because what is sin? Without portion. Without form. Sin is without form, right? So when you get out of who you are or out of your form and start trying to operate the weather which you are not, suddenly you live broken. You find yourself holding a bunch of broken pieces that, oh, by the way, are not real. Because you're not the weather. You're Zion. So many of us are trying to figure out how to get the rain to stop. And when the rain doesn't stop and it keeps raining and raining and raining and raining and raining, suddenly we feel like we're holding these broken pieces. We're not doing the things we're supposed to do. Maybe I should have prayed longer. Maybe I should have read longer. Maybe I should have gone to church more. Maybe I should have gave more. And we start going through this process of holding all the broken pieces of the rain. Guess what? They're all fake. You can't control the rain. You're supposed to be Zion. The tension you feel within you is not because you have failed to control the weather. The tension you feel in you is because you've stepped out of your seat of who you are, which is simply a mountain, and instead moved into a seat that you are not, which is God. And that's Genesis 3. He knows when you eat this, you'll be like God's. The, the sin of Genesis 3, they moved from a dwelling place with the Lord to trying to do God's job for him. And we do this, I do this all the time. 
All you are is God's dwelling place. And we spend most of our lives trying to control the weather. But when you get seated in your identity and the weather no longer shakes you, guess what you can start doing? You can sit and you can observe the weather going around you and start to see it for the beauty that it is. My trees are about to be fed. Or the sun comes out. My flowers are about to bloom. And all of it is no work. It's just rest. Go to Matthew 4 for me. Matthew 4. Hopefully you're there by now. If not, that's okay. Because I'm not there. So Matthew 4. Very familiar stuff, but I want you to see how Jesus does this. Jesus is tempted, and I, just, I want us to kind of, I hate this word, but glean. Oh, I hate that word. Um, from what Jesus is doing. Lord, if there's a better word, show me. All right, take from it. Do what? Oh. <laughs> All right, so verse 1. This is after Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Next verse. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let me read this slowly one more time so you get what it's saying. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Interesting. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. That should start to ring some bells. And afterwards, he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, now listen to this exchange. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8, 3. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now here goes the devil quoting scripture. It is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, Deuteronomy 6, 13, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Uh, Luke if I have it in my nose, yeah. Luke ends his version of this with, uh, with this. Having exhausted every way of putting him to the test, the devil left until the opportune moment. So, um, very similar, but let me just point out a couple things. Number one, Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit led him there. The Spirit led him there. Huh? You know what I'm saying? It, it, what, Jesus didn't accidentally find himself there. He was led there. Not only was he led there, he was led there 
immediately after hearing the declaration from the father, this is my son. This is my son. Remember this. Okay. Uh, By the way, just to give you some context as well. uh, In the Greek, the word Satan is diabolos. And it means accuser. So that the image you can think of is a prosecutor who is attempting to find the truth. Okay? So that's kind of the image that you can have in your head as you're reading this story. It's as if the Spirit is leading Jesus to a trial for the truth to be revealed. Okay. The word tempted in Greek is perazo, perazo, and it means to make proof of. So let me just read this one more time. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the accuser. Or we could say it like this. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be proved by the accuser. Okay. 40 days and 40 nights. Think of Moses. Moses, when he received the law at Sinai, which is also called Horeb. Okay. When he received the law at Sinai, was 40 days and 40 nights fasting to receive the law of the Lord. The other place we see this is when, and actually Moses does it twice. The third place we see it is when Elijah goes 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness to Mount Horeb or Sinai, same mountain, to hear from the Lord. And this is where Elijah says, I'm the only one left, take my life, kill me, you know, all that stuff. And then he runs to the mountain and the Lord shows up in these three ways. And finally, there's the sound of silence. Throws his cloak over, if y'all remember the story. First Kings 19, I think, if you want to go check that out. So uh, Matthew is drawing parallels to Moses and Elijah right here as Jesus is being tested in the wilderness, okay? Um, and here are the temptations. Now, somebody remind me one more time. I'm going to erase this. Hopefully you got this in your mind. What am I even writing now? Why did I just do that? Oh, oh, oh. So what just happened before this? Okay. So pre, what happened before this? The baptism. And what was declared over Jesus at his baptism? You, oh, don't know how to spell. You are my son. Or you could say it like this. You are the Son of God. Okay? Literally, the verse before this that I just read. I'll just read it. A voice after the uh, baptism, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Okay? So this is what happens before this. Then the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, same as Moses, same as Elijah, to be proven. To prove what? You are my son. The declaration, you are my son, is released over him. And then the spirit. Now, do you see this also? The father, in one moment, speaks this declaration. And then the spirit, in tandem with the father with the Son, leads the Son into the wilderness to be solidified in the declaration that was spoken over him. 
Because it's not enough for you to just simply hear who you are. You have to be proven that you actually believe this is who you are. A lot of us stop right here. A lot of us stop with hearing the gospel message, you're the beloved of God. And we never let the spirit move us into the place where the declaration is fully realized because the way to get there is temptation. It's proving. It's the Lord sending you into the wilderness of the stuff that you haven't wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole your whole life. And it's there where it is proven that you're not what you were told. You're not what you think. You are what has been declared over you, which is son and daughter of God, in whom the Father is well pleased. Okay, so he goes into the wilderness and these are the temptations. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. You are my son. You are the son of God. Listen to the temptations. The temptations are this. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Temptation number one. Temptation number two. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then temptation number three stands alone, which is, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship me. Really interesting. The temptation of Jesus harkens back to the temptation of the first humans. If you do blank, you will become Blank. In other words, if you are what God says you are, you should be able to eat of that fruit. Who cares? In each of the temptations of Jesus, his identity is placed against his actions. His identity is placed as a sum of his actions. The first two was a temptation to prove who he thought he was. The last temptation was to settle for a lesser version of who he was. But remember what preceded this, the baptism of Jesus when the father declares, you are my son. So immediately after he's tempted to question what has been previously declared over him. The first thing that happens when the declaration of his identity is spoken is a temptation to doubt the declaration that was spoken. If you're the son, prove it. You don't have to prove it to the devil. It almost feels like what he's saying is, if you're the son, prove it to yourself. I mean, if you're the son, you should be able to make stones turn into bread, right? And when that doesn't work, the next temptation is to settle. If nothing is higher than God, and Jesus is God, the Son, bowing down to another who is not God would by definition be lowering himself. Therefore, it was a temptation to settle for less than the declaration. Here's what's interesting here. What's interesting is how Jesus responds to each of these temptations. I don't know if you notice this. His sole response is scripture. He doesn't engage in the temptation. 
He simply turns his attention back to God. The one who had declared his sonship over him. I should say the father would be a little more accurate there, but you get what I'm saying. Look at each example. Okay, temptation number one is to control, is to make for yourself an identity. Make for yourself bread, okay? Temptation number two is to doubt. Throw yourself down and see if God will do what he said, right? And temptation number three is compromise. So let me write these down. Temptations. Number one is to control. Hello, I know what that is. I know about you. Maybe I'm the only one. Temptation number two is to doubt. Thank you. And number three is to compromise or settle. Most of us, if we make it through these, this right here is where we fail. If we make it through and give God the control of the things that he spoke, and then we make it through the place where we trust fully in the thing that he spoke, typically what happens is when the temptation is offered to us to settle for something extremely close to what was spoken over us, but isn't quite it, we'll stop there. What was Jesus here for? The kingdoms of the earth, right? That's even the declaration that we hear later on. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So he came for the kingdoms of the earth. The devil says, you know what? I'll give you what you came for. I'll give you every kingdom if you'll just bow down to me. I'll give you, I'll give you what you want. Just settle for a little less. This right here is the weather. All of this is. But this is where we move from Zion into attempting to control the weather. Because Jesus bowing down in this moment and receiving the kingdoms of the world would be Jesus taking reception of what was his into his own hands. I'm going to get what I came for. And in order to do that, I'm going to settle rather than simply receiving from the Father what was his inheritance at the appointed time. Okay? All of these are the weather. These are things happening around him, tempting him to engage in controlling them. But not only does he attempt, excuse me, not only does he not attempt to control them, he constantly returns to beholding. This is the word we ended last week on, and I believe it's a major word for us this year that I honestly had not, didn't have on my radar. Behold, to turn your attention inward to find the God who has already declared you whole, child, and pleasing. You are enough fully. The temptation will be to control your wholeness, to doubt your wholeness, and to compromise and settled for a fractured wholeness. And when that happens, the answer is not to engage the control and the doubt and the compromise. The answer is to simply behold, to turn your gaze back to the one who has already called you by name. We don't need a gospel that teaches us how to deal with our brokenness. We need a gospel that continually declares our wholeness until all the broken pieces of our own making submit to his declaration over us.
This is my son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. That is all you need to know about who you are. In him, he is well pleased in you. Or in you, he is well pleased. That that is the gospel. If you don't know anything else in this entire book, if you don't know theology, if you don't even know what the word eschatology means, sometimes I don't even know what that stuff means, okay? So that's fine. But we have all these big words to talk about stuff that really doesn't need a big word, the end. But that's not good enough, so we say eschatology. Okay, but all of this, theology, knowing the Bible, knowing how to pray, all that stuff is amazing. But if all you know is the declaration from the Father that in you he is well pleased, that's all you need. In you, I am well pleased. What about what I did? In you, I am well pleased. Stop trying to control the weather. Stop trying to control what's swirling on around you. Stop trying to control the things that are a result of the things that you've even done. Stop trying to control all of this. Just simply be my son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And then watch this. Then sit back and watch me take all of that stuff and turn it into beauty. The stuff in our lives that keeps us awake at night, what if, what if we could get to the place where that stuff is the very stuff that we look at and say, wow, look at what God is doing. But we never get to that point because somewhere between one of these three or in maybe a big old pile of one of these three or all of these three, somewhere here, we start trying to wrangle something that we cannot possibly wrangle because we are not God. That's why we are created to reflect the image of God. We're not called to be the originator of an image of a God. So we're not gods. We're just like one. Martin Laird says this of the temptation of Jesus. The demons could not enter his inner depths of his person. That was the Lord's domain. The demons could not, and he's talking about the thoughts, the temptations, etc. Could not enter the inner depths of the person. That was the Lord's domain. Wholeness is not measured by what you've done. It is measured by what he has done. Therefore, you are whole. How about here, Isaiah? You're whole. In the story of the prodigal son, which I don't personally like calling him prodigal son, because um, that's not who he is anymore, and honestly, he never was. But in that story, and I want to end with this, and then I'm done. Boy, I've been in early lately. What is happening? Let me, let me just, going back to two years ago, just about in a couple of months, it'll be two years since the Lord started just redeeming some of the ways that we think. And we started, if, if, if you remember, if you were here, with going through this story of, of the redeemed son. But I want you to hear this. Just, just receive it. We'll be done after this. Just receive this story. It's not long. Then Jesus said to those around him, 
religious people, sinners of every kind, etc. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me my share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in desolate living. Now, where was the son when the story started? And who was the son when the story started? Son. He squandered everything. When he spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. See the storm clouds rising? So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating because no one gave him anything. I just want you to see this, right? Storms rising. And he says, I know what I'll do to control this. I'll go hire myself out. He hires himself out. And when he's feeding the pigs, he looks at the pig slop and he says, since nobody's giving me food, I should just eat the pig slop. And it's especially um, dirty in the story because of how the Jews viewed pigs. So, I mean, it's not just the pig slop. It's the fact that these are Jews talking about pigs in general. So there's like a multi-layer to this, okay? But when he, listen to this, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father. And I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven. And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands, your slaves. So he set off and went to his father. This is, this is when he makes the transition from controlling the weather to remembering, wait a minute, I know who I am. He goes back to his father. Now I want you to hear this. While he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. This is the son that squandered everything. Then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and get the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, I know there's another part about the older son. We can get to that one other day. But you and me, that's our story, is we started home, and the whole journey of our lives when we thought we were running away, the father was sitting on the front porch waiting for the moment that you come back to your mind and realize I'm not a pig slop eating slave. 
I'm a son of my father. I'm going to go home. I don't think he will love me. This is a lot of the conversation we had in our heads. I don't think he'll love me and restore me because I know what I've done. I know the evil I've done. I know the things that I've wasted. I know the years that I've wasted. I know the, thing, the, um, the dishonor I've brought to his name. I know all of this, but I know I'm made for home. So I'm gonna go home and maybe he'll make me a slave. And when the son rounds the corner, the father is sitting there waiting for him with the fat, I taught this before, with the fattened calf. Do you know how long it takes to fatten a calf? If any of you remember this, it takes over a year to fatten a calf, which means, you ready? The father would have had many calves. The father had been preparing for over a year for his son to come home. While the son was in the dirt eating the pig slop, the father was preparing the feast for his son to return. When you thought you were your furthest from God, God was making the preparations for the celebration when you wake up and realize I'm a son or daughter of my father. And he comes back. The father doesn't ask him what he did. He doesn't ask him why he did it. He doesn't ask him where the money is. He doesn't ask him where the clothes are. He doesn't ask him why he, sm why he smells bad. He doesn't ask him why his shoes are all torn up, why his clothes are all torn up, why he's got pig slop all over him, why his hair is in a mess, why it looks like he hasn't bathed in day. He doesn't ask him any of that. He says, go get my robe. Go get a ring, go get my sandals, and go get the calf I've been fattening for over a year to prepare for him. My son was as good as dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he is found. The definition of lost means you have to own the thing that you lose. Huh? So if I say, I lost a Tesla. That's an inaccurate statement because I don't own a Tesla. You know what I'm saying? For me to say I lost something would mean for me to first have to own the thing that I lost. What if we viewed the lost and dying world in the very definition of what it even means to simply be lost? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what, what if that's the case? What if we move from this religion of trying to just get by with our lives into the place where we simply be and observe from our seat of authority and then we can be hear, begin to hear the whispers that the Father speaks over the Son and He speaks over us who are joined with the Son, which is something like this. Sit right here while I make your enemies a stool for your feet. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Uh, huh? Right? And, and this is the transition. This is why the Lord has been teaching us how to, how to find out what wholeness is, how to go back and pick up these pieces that we have left because when we realize how whole we really are, not how whole we think we are, how whole we are in truth, suddenly we can begin to simply observe. What's happening in our world right now, and I'm, I'm done. Y'all saw the balloon fiasco this week? Lord. 
This isn't a political statement in any way, shape, or form, but do y'all ever wonder who's running our country? Okay, so, um, uh, no, that was not, a, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. We do need to pray for them, though. But um, anyway, I'm watching this whole thing, and, you know, everybody's freaking out and all this other stuff. And, um, and of course, like, it's like World War III is coming and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And honestly, like, who knows? But I pray not. But as I'm watching this unfold, the definition of all of it, A, could fit into all these categories, but B, of all of it is absolute chaos. I mean, it's just chaos in the world. Um, peace is nowhere to be found. All, and the, honestly, if we're being real, since 2020, about March of 2020, that's basically what we've been in is chaos. Absolute utter chaos, absolute utter ignorance, absolute utter delusion. We've been in this for three years and we're coming back home. And the way we get back home is for us to shut out the noise of the storm that tries to call us into a place of trying to wrangle it in and simply realize that we as the church are Mount Zion, the dwelling place of the God of the universe that with a flick of his fingers, could cause everything to cease in peace. It doesn't take a nuclear warhead to cause peace. All it takes is for the church, I believe, maybe I'm crazy, but I believe all it takes is for the church to get so seated in who they are that we begin to ask for the nations and receive them as our inheritance. I don't need to fight you. I simply need to be in a place where I believe if I ask, he's gonna give it. Who among you, Jesus says, who among you would give your kids good gifts, yet your heavenly Father will give even greater gifts, which is the Holy Spirit for those who ask? You, if you being evil, Ross, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give you good gifts, primarily the Holy Spirit when you ask? But we don't believe, we don't believe we are what he says we are because somewhere in this, we've gotten tangled up with the weather. And I'm calling you today to let it go. To let it go. Read this one more time. Go ahead and bow your heads. And I just wanna read this as we close. When we recognize, one more time, when we recognize that we are Mount Zion, God's holy dwelling place, and no longer suffer from the illusion that we are the weather, then we are free to let life be as it is at any given moment. We are no longer victims of our afflictive thoughts, but their vigilant witness, silent and free, no longer requiring pain to be gone, if it happens to be present. God, I pray right now over us. I pray over myself included, all of us. And I pray that despite what's going on in the world, the temptation is going to be to try to control, to try to doubt, and ultimately try to compromise and settle. But as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. 
we will be the head and not the tail. This is what he promises the Israelites. And later on in the New Testament, Paul says, all who believe are Abraham's seed and heir to the promise. So this is you and me too. He says, you will be the head, not the tail, the first and not the last, above and not beneath, the lender, not the borrower. You will go into the land and eat of crops you did not sow. I mean, these are our promises. Jesus says to Peter, he says, because of what you gave up to follow me, everything will be returned to you a hundredfold in this life and in the next. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Don't you know tomorrow has enough worry in and of itself? You can't add one cubit, he says. You can't add one cubit of your height by worrying. So I just want to speak to those in the room who have been worried, who have been anxious, who have felt this uneasiness within them. Maybe it's because of situations around you. Maybe it's because of internal situations. Maybe it's because of lies that you've believed. Maybe it's because of things that you think are coming up that are going to happen to you. Whatever the case may be, I speak against to doubt. I speak against doubt. I speak against worry. I speak against anxiety. You are Zion, the dwelling place of the Lord. Just let life be as it is and watch the beauty of what God is growing out of the things that you've been afraid of for so long. What if the things that you've been afraid of are necessary for the promises that God spoke over your life to come to pass? And you and I have been worried about things that are the very vehicle that God's using to give us the stuff we actually prayed for. So stop worrying, stop being anxious, and just simply be what you can only be, which is the dwelling place of God. And everything else you can watch in beauty. That doesn't mean we don't do anything. That doesn't mean we quit our jobs and and move out into the wilderness and say, um, all day. You know what I'm saying? That's, That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about an internal reality. I'm talking about the way that you see everything. You in control is the worst possible situation for your life. God is not your co-pilot. If he is, get ready to crash. He will not be a co-pilot. The only way this kingdom stuff works is for you to get in the passenger seat and let him be the only pilot. And you don't get to say, you don't get to tell him why you think he should turn here or stop here or go faster here. You just simply enjoy the ride of where he's taking you. And when you get there, you're gonna look back and realize we had to get here in this exact way or we would have never made it like this. And I speak this to our church too. So listen, it, it takes a lot of faith for you to be in a room that is this small. It does. I get that. Trust me. I thank God every week for a group of people who have the guts to see prophetically rather than situationally. 
It takes guts to sow money into a ministry that is doing things in such a different way than a lot of other people. It does. It takes a lot of trust. And I wanna tell you something. I, I just wonder if the Lord is taking us down the specific path that he's taking us. And when we get to the end of the road and we look back, we're gonna stand in a room together and say, it had to be like that. Had it not been exactly like that, we would have never made it here. So I just bless you with prophetic eyes. I bless you with a way of seeing that no eye can see, no ear can hear, and no mind can comprehend on their own. And God, we're gonna praise you and thank you all along the way for what we know you're bringing us to. In your name we pray, amen.